Wawarmuli, ani gani yanten, amu ampa yarik yoba nango, tangkan banjelang wanarua, bintangkan birigaba gangalu, nkaikal yagara, turubu, kwandamuka, jinabara, yugurupu, and all sovereign nations. Or in English, hello everyone, my name is Yarek Yobanango. Just done that acknowledgement in my mother's language, the Wanneroo people of New South Wales around the Hunter Valley area. Also um, acknowledging her Bunjalung mob, Northern New South Wales, my dad's people, the Birrigubba and Gungaloo people of Central and Northern Queensland. But most importantly, we acknowledge all the nations where we are today, um, specifically the Southeast Queensland region, the Yagara and Turrbal people, um, Brisbane, then we've got the Jinnaburra um, to the north, Kwandamooka people on um, Stradbroke Island and the Yugurubu people. Also Mananjali, we've got the Kumba Mary, um, Yugambe. We'd like to acknowledge all sovereign nations. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. And we have a special guest uh, on Walking Through Worlds. And today I'm really pleased to have our author uh, and Brisbaneite now, um, who's written this book called The Last Gundir. Have I pronounced that right? Uh, Gundir, yeah, Gundir. Yeah, okay, and we're going to hear what that means and what that's all about. So we're going to introduce uh, Nayef to give us a bit of background of, one, who he is and what his heritage and what his, where his mob's from, how he ended up in Brisbane, and how he ended up writing a book which is focused around Brisbane. It's a historical fiction, and you can explain that. Let's okay. sit back and hear the story. Thank you, Greg. Yeah, Excellent introduction there. Thank you. Um, so my name is Naif Din. Uh, I was born in Kuwait. Um, I lived there for the first 10 years of my life. And then I moved to London. I grew up in London. I'm British. My parents are originally from Pakistan, but they're both British. Um, grew up in London and went to university, graduated as a civil engineer. Um, and I, in 2008, I was asked to come down here to Brisbane to design um, one on Eagle Street, one of the skyscrapers in the Brisbane CBD, and Airport Link, um, the tunnel nobody uses in Brisbane. <laughs> um, so I, I, I was so I moved across here 2008, 12 years ago, and um, I just I, I love history. I love to learn more about the place that I'm living in, and I just got more and more intrigued about Brisbane's history, both the the colonial history, but then also the history that is almost invisible in, in bookshops, in libraries, in, in, on, in media, um, which is the, the local culture, the Aboriginal culture of this area before the Europeans turned up. Mm. So I, I think it's important for um, anyone living in a certain place to know the story of that place. So it doesn't matter where you live. You know, if you live in a certain place, you should know the story of that place. So I got intrigued to want to write more about uh, Brisbane's Aboriginal history. But to write in a historic fiction way so that you can, it's a storyline, you get attached to characters. Um, and then three years ago, I met Marucci Baramba. She's been a fantastic guide. You know, she's... Now, who um, is Marucci? Marucci Baramba, she's the song woman and the law woman of the Turbul tribe, um, the Brisbane um, area. And she's been fantastic. She's been a, my guide for the last three years. Um, and yeah, the kindness that she showed me, it's, it was touching. It was really, really touching. Um, so yeah, and then I released this novel, published this novel last year, self-published, um, but it's out there now, Avid Reader Bookshop, Riverbend Bookshop, and the SLQ Bookshop here. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit, a bit of the synopsis of what the story's about? So the story, it's, uh, it's a bit Harry Potter-esque, you know, there's a little, there's a young uh, tubal boy, his name is Bungie, 
He attends the Banyanup Festival uh, on Jarawar country. That was arguably the largest Aboriginal gathering on the continent until 1902, um, the Nut Festival. So the story starts during that festival. You learn a bit about what the festival comprised, you know, what used to happen there, the trades, the marriage proposals, all those sorts of things. But then he gets sung to death by a gundir. Now, a gundir is the Sadala word, actually, um, f- meaning Aboriginal sorcerer. And there are two different types. There was one who healed and brought rain, the jindin gundir. And then there was one who actually killed people, who assassinated people, the, um, the mingom gundir. So Banji, he becomes a victim of point in the bone. And he survives. He ends up back in Tubal country. Um, the tribes, they're not sure why, how he survived, but then he goes to his skipper trials, um, he goes, which is his manhood trials, and he starts to sort of see things that are going to arrive in the future, and also a little bit about his past. Um, I don't want to say too much more without giving away about what happens to Bungie, but the novel does converge on real-life true events of 1823 that happened here in, in the Brisbane area. So what I loved about finding this book and finding AF at the market selling these books is that it captures a period of Australian history between 1768 and 1823. And of course, some of this history is, you know, historical fiction, but there's a lot in this that are the real letters from the articles from the British Museum and in Canberra. So there's an amazing amount of research that you've done to really awaken Australians about their own country and the history that intertwines between First Nations people. And that's what I love about it. Do you want to sort of talk about the period around this this uh, region, around Brisbane, or uh, as we call Mianjin, um, what was occurring up until, I think you mentioned and you mentioned in the book, there's no white settlers really appearing here mm-hmm. for quite a while, mm-hmm. you know, what period was that? So, obviously, the novel starts in 1768, um, and that's, that's just basically when the Endeavour left England. Um, so, although this novel is looking at Aboriginal culture of Brisbane, it also explores um, the European efforts to find Terra Australis incognito, and the sequential visits by the Portuguese, then the Dutch, then the French, then the English. Um, and in this area, James Cook had never actually come into Moreton Bay. He actually he missed um, the entire bay itself. He went along the eastern coast of Morton Island. He called that Morton Bay. And he named that after Lord Morton. And there's a letter that I've included in the, the novel, which um, it's a fascinating letter from Lord Morton, a British figure who in 1768, he encompassed the, the principles of the Black Lives Matter movement, if you want. And he was right. basically advocating for equality and saying, you've got to treat Aboriginal people um, with respect and equally, and also remember that they are the lords of the country. So I put the actual letter word for word uh, in the novel there as well. But in this whole region, um, the Endeavour missed Moreton Bay. Uh, Matthew Flinders, he was the first one to actually, first European to enter Moreton Bay itself. Um, but he he only had a few sort of skirmishing if you like, encounters on Yaroon, Bribe Island, um, until 1823. And that's when the three Ghosts. I don't want to reveal too much. I'd, I'd like the reader to read to come across that passage mm. and go, oh, "This is real. This actually mm. happened." Uh, but that was 1823. So, how much of it is real, and how much is storytelling? Well, historic fiction—it's—it's it's always going to be a, a blend. You have to blend education with imagination. Mm. So, um, for example, when I talk about the skin motifs. 
um, for the Aboriginal people in this area. That's that's accurate. That's do you really want to do you want to expand on that? What that uh, is for the that listeners? was a concept that I found really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, Me too. The skin modi concept. It's something that really it blew my mind when I came across it. Um, it's and the analogy that I, I give on my website, I have a blog on my website, and I give an analogy with the house system that you have in school. Now, in Kuwait, where I grew up, um, in, the, in the school that I went to, we all belong to a certain house. Mm-hmm. Like Harry Potter belongs to Gryffindor and Malfoy to Slytherin. So we all belong to a certain house. Uh, I was in Phylika. There was another house called Jahra. Uh, there was uh, Bergen and Ahmedi. And Phylika was always the best house, so... <laughs> Red ones there. Um, but on sports day and swimming gala, you left your association with your class and you joined your new brothers and sisters in Phylica. And then you competed against the other lot. Mm-hmm. Skin moiety concept system, it's, it's a system that, that it's, I guess, a set of, set of rules that uh, govern an entire area. Everybody belongs to one skin type. And in this area, there are four. Um, if you go further north, you find, you find more. I think the Darwin area, there's about eight different types there. But... Here in the Brisbane area, there were four. There were two on one side, Banjur and Barang, two on the other, Chorin and Bonda. And if you belong to a certain skin type, everybody of that skin type was your brother or sister. Mm. So, and you inherited from your mum. So mm. if your mum was a, a Banjur, then you became a Barang because they were twinned. Um, and on the other side, there was Bonda and Chorin. If your mum was a Bonda, then you became a Chorin. Now, what that meant was that you could not marry a Chorin, could not marry another Chorin. They had to find someone on the other side and marry a, a barang or a banjo. To give you an example, imagine, imagine you're a Ugemba man, you're a Gold Coast man, and you want to visit Noosa. You leave Gold Coast, Ugemba, you come to the boundary with the Trubal tribe, um, you light a fire, and uh, I come over and say, what do you want? And you'll say, oh, I'm a Ugemba man of the emu totem, my skin moiety is barang. I will then find someone from the Trubal tribe who is a barang, and this person has never seen you before. But I'll say, oh, your Barang brother's there. He's trying to get to Noosa. But he is now under tribal obligation to escort you on tribal country, to keep you warm, to feed you, to keep, you know, tell you stories about his life that he may not tell me, even though we're both tribal people. He will see you as his brother. He will get up to the boundary with the Gabi Gabi peoples, Sunshine Coast, light a fire. Someone will come over. What do you want? It's, oh, my Barang brother here is trying to get to Noosa. So they'll find maybe a woman this time, a Barang woman. Um, of the Gabi Gabi peoples. This person will see you again as her brother. You will see her as your sister. And she will help you get to Noosa. Which meant that wherever you went in this area, you were never an only child. Mm. You know, you were always had brothers and sisters always ready to offer you assistance and, and protection wherever you were. Which I thought was fascinating. You know, the that fact is that. so beautiful. Because in reality, what that means is that any stranger that approaches, you treat them with kindness. Mm. Exactly. Because you don't know if that person is related to you or someone within the tribe. Um, and in some ways, I think that worked against the local tribes once the colony first arrived. Mm. And I'm exploring that in the sequel to the novel, you know, exploring the themes of why the colony survived here when there were 10 spears for every musket. How is it that the colony survived? And I think the kindness particularly around the skin moiety concept system, where they saw the invaders as potentially tubal ghosts, you know, yeah. tubal people who have died, have come back, and therefore they are related to somebody in the tribe. You wouldn't shoot somebody who you thought was your relation. Mm-hmm. So that's, it did work against Aboriginal people, I think. Um, but again, that's a concept that I think people should be aware of today because it's, it's fascinating. But I think the mob concept, which still I've encountered, you know, in urban settings where... 
people are really close to each other through family lines, aren't they? If they share yeah. similar or because or, um, a lot of the Western names they picked up, you know, the Johnsons or mm. the, the Greens or whatever, have come from the history, I understand, is the farmers. Yep. They took the name from the farmers, which is a similar thing that happened in America with African-American slaves at the time, wasn't it? Mm. Didn't they take property owners' surnames and that became their name? It was never their real name, mm. but that was the Western name that they were given and that mm. they hung on to. Mm. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm yeah, no, that's going on what I'd heard. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah sounds similar. Yeah, what I love about um, just you explaining that and especially focusing on the strengths of Aboriginal culture is that unbroken line of kinship. Mm-hmm. There's so many different layers, um, and I love that because in our languages, there's no word for auntie or uncle. Um, or cousin, mm-hmm. you're either you have obligations as a parent, grandparent, or sibling, and we only have language names for those. So that just reaffirms, um, you know, everything we've been taught. And when we travel to other communities, you know that there's always someone there ready to offer you a bed or a cup or a feed. Mm-hmm. Wherever we go in Aboriginal communities, we know that we're going to be warmly welcomed mm-hmm. because we'll know someone that knows someone or you know is connected to a family member and. I think that's so beautiful. And what I also love is that it's hearing a lot of the local history from a foreigner when a lot of people born and raised in this country have limited knowledge on Mm. the true history of this country. So Mm -hmm. it's a breath of fresh air to hear the local knowledge and, you know, the amazing history and you share it with such such passion. And I absolutely love that. We need more people like you. So thank you for this book. I can't wait, wait to read it. I know you've read it. Mm. And I'm just wondering what would be a little spear, like a review on this book. Oh, for anyone to read it. Look, it's one of those books that um, if you've never read historical fiction, it's it feels so real and the characters come to life and you really engage with the characters. You, you get a sense of their feelings, their emotions, what's going on. You know, and as, as Nayef has sort of um, has said, he's, he's incorporated a lot of the true history, letters that we don't even know about, that we've never heard mm. going to school. You know, we've never heard these true histories. We talk about truth. Mm. There's a lot of truth embodied in this book. So it really is for people to wake them up, to think about that relationship we, regardless of where we've all come from, to really have that deep respect for our First Nations people and what they've gone through. You know, now, what is that word that we were talking about and explain that? Because this word... Palimpsest. Palimpsest, that that's our word for the day. Palimpsest. So Raymond Evans, he's a, he's a very well-known historian, local historian in uh, Brisbane. He's re- published many books. Um, in reviewing my book, he actually, he, he wrote, um, The Past is a Palimpsest. And basically... Palimpsest is when you get layers, particularly in geology, when you have layers of rock, mm. um, and each layer tells a story of the time that existed at that time. Um, and so this novel, what this does is it strips away the current development of Brisbane, the mm. Brisbane region, strips that away. It then strips away the early colonial history as well, and then looks at what, what did this area look like in those days. So the Kipper Ring at Samford, Cupidabin was called back then, place of possums. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a kipper ring. So what used to happen there? You know, nowadays you drive past Upper, upper, upper White's Mountain Road, mm. you'll see the boring there. It's, it doesn't look like much but a clearing. But 
strip away the current development and that area was was alive with such important traditions mm -hmm. of this area. Um, it, it's, and that particular borrowing itself was very important compared to other borrowings. Um, well, I learned something particularly in there when you talk about Kipper Ring because, you know, last year we moved down to Redcliffe and Redcliffe has a suburb called Kipper Ring. And even though we're in a new settlement called Newport, the GPS says we're in Kipper Ring. And right from our backyard, we're on a wetland. So probably prior to this development, where we're living was a wetland and it was Kipper Ring. It was probably sacred ground mm. used for ceremony and um, it, it was a rites of passage, wasn't it, for yep. young boys yep. to yep. men. When you were doing that, you know, that writing about Kippering and the, the rites of passage, how were you feeling in terms of comfort? Because I know a lot of this is sacred in terms of what can be mm. written mm -hmm. about and what can be spoken. How did you navigate that yeah, to, you know, to actually get it right without sort of giving too much away? Yeah. And how did you go? Yeah, that's, that's, that's an important question. Um, and particularly around a lot of the, the local culture. Initially, when I started to write this novel, um, it was very difficult to actually do the research for Aboriginal culture because you can go to the library, you can pick up a book on Aboriginal culture, but the problem is that the information there might be relevant to some tribe in, in Darwin, mm. you know, not South not Australia or yeah. 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 South Australia. It yeah. wouldn't be specific to this particular area. Mm. What really, um, it, if you want to call it divine intervention or whatever, I was at the Bookfest. Uh, many years ago, almost eight years ago, and I came across this small, tattered second edition copy of Reminiscences of Early Queensland. Now, it's a book that um, was written by Tom Petrie. So Tom Petrie, oh. he was a young boy. Um, Andrew Petrie was a civil engineer. They asked him to come up here um, to fix up the colony because the colony was struggling. Um, the, the windmill that you see in Roma Street, that was not working. It was an engineering disaster. So um, Andrew Petrie was asked to come up here and... and, and help build the colony. Now, Tom Petrie was a very young boy. He was a six-year-old boy. And, you know, boys are like, they're curious. They're, they're not biased. You know, they're, they're too young to have mm. that sort of bias in them. So he grew up here um, with the Aboriginal community, with the Aboriginal tribes. He learned their language. He mm. earned their trust. They invited him to the Banyana Festival. Yeah. The reason that I can write about the Banyana Festival with some accuracy is because he described what he saw. Um, and he also describes the kippa making ceremony. They invited him to the ceremony at Sanford at Kippa de Bin. So, um, firsthand, you know, I don't use the word tainted. It was pure Aboriginal culture that you know no missionaries could mm. come and, and later corrupt. It mm. was pure culture. He was a young boy growing up here. There were Aboriginals all over this colony area. Mm. Um, I mean, I know we call it Boundary Street, and there was a boundary fence, uh, but. Before that happened, you know, he was growing up immersed in their culture. Yeah. So in that book that I found in Bookfest, it described all of the cultural tradition that he had seen firsthand. Wow. Um, and I thought this should be, this information should be out there. Yes. Um, and so I, I used that as like a blueprint to weave my stories, my characters. So they, when they go through the keep making ceremony, I've tried to keep that very accurate, very respectful to what was actually described. Um, in those it was things. almost like a little uh, Olympic Games. Within there, there were a series of games that the, the boys played. Uh, before, yeah, before the, the before the actual initiation started, they yes. could do that. But when initiation started, they had to stop. It mm. was all it was weeks and weeks of self-discipline, um, of 
periods where they couldn't look up to the sky, uh, periods where they, they couldn't eat certain foods, basically self-restraint mm. and, and trials. You know, we, we talk about, I don't know, uh, like conscription, for example, teaches young men and women, you know, discipline and, and habits for the future. It was a bit like that, you know, mm. where you go through training to become a young man. Um, and also you learn, you learn about secret corroborees that only you are allowed to see. Mm. Um, and that's why there are certain rankings of borrowings um, around, around Australia, uh, around this region. So yeah, that was, it's, and it was basically a, a, a rite of passage. So once you've finished, then you could even have a new name. You, know, you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't uh, keep your original name. Um, but I, I try to keep all the characters having the same name. Otherwise, it would just confuse people. Yeah. If yeah, the same but... character changed names three times, like what? <laughs> now, there is a bit in this book that I want one of us to read, and it was towards the end, and um, I'm going to maybe throw it open to Yarika, if you're okay with that. Yeah. I want you to read it. She hasn't read this, um, but I'd like you to listen to what she's about to read, and then we're going to have a little okay, discussion 427. around it. 427 is the page. So general comment. An empire seeking to expand encounters a vast island on the edge of the known world. The island comprises a number of tribes, each living in their own country and following a simple rural life. The natives speak a group of similar languages, but their traditions and beliefs vary across the land. There exist clever men who the, who the locals believe could perform magic. The empire believes that capturing this last land on the edge of the known world is strategically important and sends its fleet across the sea. Its superior weaponry is sufficient to overcome resistance and the land is successfully claimed by the empire. Shortly afterwards, colonies are established with the building of towns and roads across the land. Governors are installed locally to represent the empire. Sacred sites are mostly destroyed in the process. Some natives are pushed into the northern and western areas of the land. Others rally and try to resist, but are massacred in battles. Some try or are forced to assimilate into the culture of the invaders. The different tribes all have to learn the one language of the empire and eventually their own languages begin to die out. The reader is forgiven for assuming the above paragraph is describing the invasion and colonization of Australia by the British Empire. It is, in fact, describing the invasion and colonisation of Britain by the Roman Empire. Prior to Roman invasion in the first century, Britain comprised a number of tribes living in their own countries. These tribes included the... I'm not going to pronounce <laughs> these right, so I'll hand over to you. So, Catavalloni, around Hertfordshire, Damoni, Cornwall, Ordoviches, one of many in Wales, Brigantes, Yorkshire, Canty, Kent, and Venicones, one of many in Scotland. Wow. So like the Aboriginal peoples of Australia, these tribes had their own identities, but could converse with neighboring tribes as they spoke a group of similar Celtic languages. There was little sense of belonging to one nation. Just as the Europeans provided the names of New Holland and later Australia to a collective group of different nations, the Romans provided the names of Britannia, England, Caledonia, which is Scotland, and Hibernia, which is Ireland, to the collective group of different nations. The Romans believed that these islands lay tantalizingly close to the edge of the known world, 
drawing a parallel with European efforts to find Terra Australis incognito. Mm. There you go. Wow, that's really interesting. It is. When I read that, um, after reading a lot of history, and I realised, you know, we're talking here about the Celtic people mm -hmm. of the Western sort of areas within probably, you know, UK, Wales, um, Ireland, Scotland, mm -hmm. and knowing that that goes further up, goes up into Spain and it goes all the way up through France in Brittany and Quiberon, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because you'll find a lot of stone structures. They had these, you know, very much this influence around what we know as Stonehenge, but mm. there's a lot of stone sacred sites all through that Western um, thing. So here they were 2,000 years ago, the Brittany's, um, were basically decimated by the Romans. Mm. And it's almost like, to me, what came was, you know, a karmic response or something that has occurred in our histories. You know, and this is not alone, that we've got to look at that, learn from that, and then say, well, here we are in this environment. We've had 200 years of this, you know, a little over 200 mm. years, but now as we know, it's about this healing and unification, mm -hmm. yeah. really deep re-understanding mm -hmm. what's occurred. And we can't just brush it away. You know, we can't just go, oh, yeah, that's 230 years ago. Mm. This is, you know, civilizations like the Celtics that existed, had a very peaceful existence, looking after the land, were really mm. nature-based uh, people. And this has occurred you know, in so many levels, again, in that sort of layers and layers mm -hmm. across our humanity for thousands of years. Mm. And here we are, probably one of the last um, continents that really had this done to it. Mm -hmm. And the peoples, the first peoples, yeah. you know, um, you know, Northern America obviously had it, Canada had it, uh, South Africa, you know, Africa's had it mm. with the invasion and colonisation. But it's just interesting that that's why this book is so good because it makes you really think about that beautiful history that was here way before and to realise that they really had a kindness and that they were kind to each other mm. once, they, once they knew their role within their society and their civilization. you know? Yeah. It's... it's can only have so much deeper respect. Definitely. It's basically, it's a portrayal of, of life that happened here bef without any, I guess, um, without the influences of colonization. Mm. And I think the first step to reconciliation isn't to say sorry. The first step is to learn um, yes. and understand. So that's what the book tried to do. Essentially, it tries to sort of portray what life was like here before we turned up. Mm. Um, and it's historic fiction, so there are some things which, in the commentary of the novel, I call out that this is this is fictional and that this is real. Mm -hmm. uh, but it still allows you a flavour for for understanding and appreciating that this was a civilization that was highly evolved. It was highly spiritual. Um, James Cook himself, when he came here, he he'd seen the, the the tribes in Tahiti, he'd seen the tribes in in New Zealand, the Maoris, and he'd seen the Aboriginal people. And he said that unlike the other two. Here, they didn't prize gems and beads and, and clothes. You give them these beads, and then the next day, they're scattered by the fire. Mm. Um, and like he, the Mongolian tribes of the prairies, mm. that the Chinese were trying to offer silver or gold. Yeah. And the Mongolian tribes, Genghis Khan and all that, didn't see these material things as any serving no purpose. Mm. Yeah. So they couldn't really trade. 
So point. In, and along the coast of Queensland, you know, he stopped 13 times and interacted with quite a few tribes. And he noted down that although they appear wretched in condition, Aboriginal people are in reality far happier than we Europeans. His mm. words, because he'd seen that unlike the Tahitians and the Maoris, the Aboriginal people were different. They mm. were very different in culture, very different in how they treated each other um, and, and how they treated strangers as well. So that's, um, yeah, it's, it's, got a bit of, it's got a bit of that as well. It's got a bit of the, the uh, European exploration. Oh, I think that's well. wonderful. And where does someone pick up a copy of this book? So um, Avid Reader Bookshop in West End, mm-hmm. uh, Riverbend Bookshop in Bulimba, um, the SLQ Bookshop here as well, uh, Berkelow in New Monday. At the moment, most of those have sold out, so I'm doing a second print run soon, but Excellent. hopefully I'll, I'll get them. Now, what about Mid-August. people outside that are hearing this from... Uh, so Amazon, you can, you can order on Amazon yeah. as well. Um, and Kobo, there's another uh, book depository sort of place. And it, this is not just the only book. You're, you mentioned you've got a sequel coming. Yes, there is a sequel to this. Um, Fantastic. Which carries on the story um, into the period where the first colony arrives to Queensland. So there's, there's more of the frontier conflict themes in that novel um, as opposed to this one. This one is mostly European exploration and pure Aboriginal culture. Uh, the second one is more of the interactions, the frontier conflict. The sort of, I guess, the sort of novels that you tend to find in the bookshops. Um, quite often you wouldn't find a, a book like this, which doesn't focus on the negative aspects, just mm. rejoices in local Aboriginal culture. I love that. We definitely need more books like that. And I wanted to just, something um, stuck in my mind that you said earlier you know, you, you come to this country and you wanted to learn, you know, the local history. And I think that's something um, that a lot of people miss, whether they're born and raised here or visitors to this country, um, because it's not, it should be common knowledge. You know, the true history of this country should be common knowledge because it's our shared history, whether you're a citizen or res- resident of this country. And you said that, you know, when we learn about the place we live in, um, I think that's just a given for us. We do that. But my grandmother always used to say, if you live in this place and you call this place home you have an obligation to learn the true history and that's for where you know whoever you are wherever you're living and when you learn the true history of a place you have a much deeper respect and appreciation um and a connection Mm -hmm. you know you you have a pride a sense of pride in the place that you call home and i think if we all adopted um that methodology you know just learning about the place we live in whether it's any of the 150 or so suburbs that we live in in Brisbane, there's like 50 of those suburbs still with um, the original or derivative of the um, original place name. So I think, um, you know, there's going to be a lot to be learnt from this book. I'm a history buff, so I'm really looking forward to learning more about the local history. And, you know, my three children and my two granddaughters were born here in Mianjin, so it's important that I instil this same sense of um, connection to to their birthplace and to respect and remind us that we're visitors on mm-hmm. someone else's land. So um, I'm definitely going to be reading this and passing it on to my children. So thank you. <laughs> and I really appreciate you coming today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. That's great. Thanks for thank joining us. Thank you very much. Lovely thank to you. talk with you. That was, yeah. It was a pleasure. And pleasure. thank you, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe to our website and our YouTube channel, uh, which is walkin3worlds.com. Uh, come to our website. And uh, stay in touch and have a listen to many great episodes we release every week. And thanks, Nayef. I'm really, really excited to have you on today.
Thank you, everyone. Goodbye. Uh,